So Jay commences to kick in this door. We're yelling police, you know, like we're supposed to and everything. And the door flies open, always comes back shut, you know, always happens. Well, I bend down. You know how you crouch down to, to draw your weapon? You kind of crouch a little bit. Three shots came through the door right over my head. Three gunshots. So I started going towards him. I'm in, my butt's in the breeze here, right? I don't have any cover, so I gotta take out the threat. Muzzle flashes kept coming. Instantaneously, you realize that, hey, this is the real thing. Um, in my mind's eye, all I can see is fog and muzzle blasts. Why is he still shooting? Like, man, I'm gonna get hit. My leg, my, it was like uh, somebody was hiding around the corner and hit me with a sledgehammer in my leg. The craziest rage I've ever felt in my life came to me. And I said, remember your training. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ATO friends. I'm Joe King. Today I'm sitting with a special guest co-host, narcotic detective, Todd Conway. Todd, say hello. Hey, everyone. Also back today to dish out more punishment to the listeners is Sergeant Kent Wolverton. Happy to be here. And we have a very special guest co-host, former DPD. She's going to be on a later episode, Gretchen Rocha. Hello, everyone. You'll hear her voice later on in her own episode, and its I, I promise it's quite the story. Today we're going to discuss Charlie Brown Effect. Don't laugh. There's a purpose. In October of 1950, Charles Schultz brought the world the Peanuts comic strip. One of the main characters was named Charlie Brown. And for the first time in November of 1952, a character named Lucy would hold a football for Charlie to kick off. Charlie would concentrate, take aim, and run to kick the football. And right at the last minute, Lucy would yank the ball away. Charlie would whiff it where the ball once was and fall flat on his back. Every year at Thanksgiving, Charlie would put his trust in Lucy to finally hold the ball steady, and Charlie would get to kick the ball, launching it from the ground. But Charlie never kicked the ball, as Lucy would, on cue, pull the ball away. Sometimes life can be like this. Hopes up, you concentrate and focus, 
at the last minute, you can be on your back. Look it up like Charlie. Today's guest will describe this feeling of falling flat on your back in professional and personal life, but also learning from it and growing from each experience. He's a former MP in the Marines, Bear County Sheriff, undercover Dallas PD narc. He now has his hand in DPD administration, as well as commanding DPD's fugitive unit and gang unit. He's been married since 1986 to Yvonne, three grown children, and seven grandkids. It's ATL's honor to welcome to the stage Dallas PD Major Mark Harris. Mark, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now the uh, bridging the divide has reached the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, we. <laughs> yeah, we went under the. We're under the bridge now, and we're yeah. we're uh, we're scraping. Uh, if, if anybody's got any suggestions for us, please help us. We need we need some yeah. we need some need better some we need some guests and uh, yeah we're scraping the bot the barrel with a major now Mark th- seriously thanks for coming on I, uh, I appreciate you can I call you Mark or is it do I have to yeah you make you made me salute when I walked in yeah okay. my, no my name's Mark okay Mark. all right Major Mark okay got it all right we're gonna just dive into this uh, I'm gonna start off with some easy ones for you you know how this goes and the listeners that they, they know how it goes as well so where'd you grow up. Uh, I was born in Terre Haute, Indiana, 1966, so do the math. Did you say terrible uh, Indiana? It's, well, yeah, that <laughs> should have been the name of it, <laughs> Terre Haute. Uh, no, I, I I love Terre Haute, but uh, yeah, it was a stinky city. It's uh, they, uh, Commercial solvents was the big plant there where they put the coating on the telephone poles. So every time we went to the mall, which we only had one, we used to try to hold our breath the entire time we drove by. That it never worked. Um, Is that scuba di- scuba diver training? Yeah, <laughs> living there. Yeah, yeah. I can dive down to like three hundred yeah. feet. Now. <laughs> um, and then uh, when I was about four, my parents were divorced when I was really young. So when I was about fourteen, my mom remarried, moved to Paris, Illinois, which is thirty miles from from just across the river from Terre Haute, and uh, stayed there about a year. Farm life wasn't really for me so i moved to st louis missouri with my dad my dad was living there with his uh with my stepmother and uh that's where i finished high school basically was in st louis when did you meet yvonne high school sweetheart no uh we met uh when i was at mp school okay so i went to uh to high school in st louis um this is one of those where i charlie brown myself but uh my I had my dad was pretty well off, you know, by that time, and uh, so I had a basically a full ride to University of Missouri at St. Louis, um, not academic scholarship. My dad was going to pay for it, and uh, an apartment, a car. I didn't pay for any insurance, anything like that. And after one semester, I quit. You're like Billy Madison, that movie. Yeah, 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 like yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I didn't have to go all the way back through <laughs> kindergarten though. Yeah. Um, after one semester and you know kind of a breakup with a everything's over a girl right but um i i i went and joined the marine corps and uh wow that's and so then after when i got out of boot camp in may of uh, 86 i got sent to lackland air force base in san antonio for mp school and that's where i met yvonne and what was that like the mp being an mp and why did you gravitate towards the like the law enforcement you know, it's a couple of things during my life. When we were living in Terre Haute, um, 
one night somebody, you know, my mom, single mother, and uh, with three young kids at home, uh, somebody raised up her bedroom window one night and started climbing in her in her bedroom. She got us up and got us out of the house and called zero. There wasn't any nine one one. Yeah, and uh, it's a good thing that the our party line. We we had party lines, so you Our, shared a phone with somebody, right? So you pick up your phone to call somebody, and they people four houses down would be on the phone. You can couldn't call. I think we anyway. call that bootleg down south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah still got that, I think, in, in South Dallas. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the police came, and they just really impressed me. They looked like one Adam twelve. You know, I mean, they yeah. um, the they had the same uniforms, no patches, just a badge. You know, that kind of thing. So. That impressed me. And then later on in high school, I worked at a movie theater. And um, the projectionist went on strike one time. So we had to have police protection there because the scrubs came in to do the to show the movies. And getting to talking to those guys really, really got me interested in being a police officer. So when I decided I was not wanting to go to college, um, I, I tried to join the St. Louis County Police Department. And they said, yeah, go away, kid. You know, and uh, so, so I thought, well, military police. You know, did you uh, did you ever decide? Did you ever look at pursuing a career as a marine, just staying there? No, that really wasn't ever in my mind. Um, I just wanted to get, I wanted to get to where I was old enough to be a cop, and I think you, I think they had a, you had to be nineteen to be a cop in the Marines. Uh, you know, you couldn't be a 17 year old MP and, uh, but, uh, so yeah, I went to boot camp in February of 86. I had actually the, there wasn't any MP spots open when I was enlisting. So it was my second choice. My first choice, which I was slated to do was jet mechanics. Um, that might've, that might've been all right. <laughs> it, that, it, that specialty? Yeah, it might've been, it might've worked out pretty yeah. good, but, um, but so the jet mechanics, I, I enlisted in December of 85 and I wasn't going to go to boot camp until November of 86. And then they recruiters called me and said, if you want an MP spot, you're leaving in February. So I took it and, uh, it's a good thing I did. I mean, I, when we get along in this, I'll, everything works out for a reason, you know, yeah. it really does. So, um, Got sent to Lackland and met Yvonne at the at the uh, Skylark Enlisted Club about a month after I got there. So. Was it like that scene on Top Gun when they were in that bar at the in the beginning? Oh yeah, it was, that's I think they made the movie <laughs> yeah. because of me. I think that's probably you had the mirror sunglasses on in the in the club. <laughs> the resemblance is striking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was actually one of the first movies we ever went to see together. Eighty six. That and Karate Kid. Oh yeah. God, yeah, that was a good date. Eighties yeah. movie. Yeah. How did your father take this? You going into the military? He threw a fit. Um, so they had this program at the time called, um, well, it was a contract corporal program, but you had to enlist for six years. And you got uh, you guaranteed, I'm using air quotes, guaranteed to be promoted to corporal in 18 months. No. So <clears throat> that was... Uh, we were the brunt of everybody's jokes when we were in the we were contract corporals. I did not make corporal in eighteen months <laughs> um, because of a series of unfortunate events. But uh, 
I got in trouble once, and I, so they suspended it for six months. And then I've always had, ever since I was a kid, I've had a weight problem. And uh, I know I don't look like it now, but um, so I I I had a, a surgery. I had to have a surgery just early on when I was had first gotten to Camp Pendleton. I went to Camp Pendleton. Uh, I probably ought to back up. I met my wife, and I met Yvonne in June of '86. We were married in October, uh, eleven days before my twentieth birthday. Wow! Um, and then so we packed up our car. We packed up my car full of her stuff and drove to California with no plan. I had a thousand dollars that my dad gave me for a wedding present, and I was thinking about it last night. Like we just drove around and found an apartment complex and walked in and signed a lease. Just Beverly Hillbillies, huh? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean it was. It was crazy. I mean, I don't even know how we did things anymore. I can't remember. It's been so long. Like, but uh, so we did that. Did had no furniture. Uh, my best friend from high school was my best man. Rode to California with us, and uh, we when I I had to go back to work the next day after we got back or that day I can't remember. And uh, so I got home from from work, and I and I. When I well, when I got home from work, they're sitting there in an empty apartment. They've been bored to death, and we jumped in the car and went and rented an entire apartment full of furniture. So it was sounds like a great honeymoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome! <laughs> it's yeah, furniture awesome. shopping. Yeah, very and, free spirited uh, yeah. approach. But that was one of the that was one of the other things. Is like uh, okay, I'm going to be a cop, right? I'm going to be an MP. I get it out of MP school. And they sent me to first FSSG Camp Pendleton, California, which is not driving around in patrol cars and standing gates. It's uh, sitting in fighting holes, uh, protecting the perimeter of a head, headquarters type of area in a war zone. That's what the field MPs do. And I was, I got there and I was like, oh man, <laughs> damn, <laughs> you know? yeah, careful what you wish for when I'm being MP. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't. I want you to explain the Charlie Brown effect. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so so Charlie Brown, he was just this poor soul, you know. He just uh, he 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 got a rock every time he went trick or treating, you know. Every year he gets rocks and he never got any candy, you know. Uh, Charlie Brown tried to kick that football every year, fell flat on his back every year. It's just like for me, it resonates because. Of well, what I was just saying, I'm all excited. I get out of MP school. I got promoted <coughs> to Lance Corporal before I before I left MP school, and I they hand me my orders and there I'm like, and they're like, oh no, you're going to the field MPs, you know, and there's that football, you know, right out from underneath you, you know. And I'm like, what? What's a field MP? And spent a lot of time, uh, spent a lot of nights in in holes, and you know. The last big operation we did before I left the Marine Corps was in 29 Palms, California. Mm-hmm. If anybody's ever been there, you can spend a, a day, a week there one month. You know, it's awful, or however you say right. that. Um, 120 degrees during the day, about 70 at night. So you're freezing cold and then hot. You know, it's awful. So your experience as an MP, it wasn't too well not until yeah not until uh in in 88 i put in a form uh 
I just said, I told Yvonne, I said, I got to get out of this unit. Um, so I put in a form, a request to transfer, and I put uh, Marine Corps Base, Camp Pendleton, which is the, you know, what you think MPs do. Um, I put in for El Toro, California, an air, air station, and then I put in for uh, another one. I can't remember. And I told her, you know what's going to happen is they're going to send me to Japan, so just get ready because we're going to Japan. <laughs> but I actually got the Marine Corps Base, Camp Pendleton, um, spot by then i'd been promoted to corporal and we actually got a base base housing so things started looking up it was we were going going pretty good you uh you, you put in your bio that you you struggle with the pt test initially what what yeah. did you do to fight through that well so i in boot camp you didn't really have a choice i mean you know when i when i graduated boot camp i ran the three mile required uh run in 20 minutes in 10 seconds or something uh, but i was always consistently around 24 25 minutes i just did it i mean i was in good shape then uh but i've always struggled with pt tests as you're probably gonna you're gonna find out in this <laughs> during this time um it's mostly mental we didn't make you do one prior to coming in here though just maybe let do the, the stairs know. like yeah. eight times yeah well <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh yeah pt pt test um so i went to i went to marine corps base camp pendleton and we were on 12-hour shifts and uh we did we would do half a night at standing gates and half the night on patrol so that was pretty good i liked it it was uh, long hours but every other weekend we got a three-day weekend um and i was just living life you know but as we all know driving around in a squad car eating at Burger King, you know, the only thing that's open, there's a Burger King on base. I think that was the only restaurant they had at the time. Um, gained a little weight, and I had been on weight control. They have a weight control program in the Marine Corps. and Diet private? Diet, well, that well, that was boot camp. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's eating toothpaste because you're so hungry. Yeah. Right, you know. <laughs> John, shout out John Valdez. He was a diet private. Yeah. And thank you for your service, John. Diet private. So when you you go to the chow hall in boot camp and you're a diet private, first of all, they spray paint two big red stripes on your all of your PT shirts. Like a scarlet so letter. Every, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like in Little League football in Indiana, if you were over 120 pounds, you couldn't carry the ball. So if I intercepted a pass, I had to just fall down. And the, well, the way that you, the referees knew that is there was a big white stripe on your helmet to indicate that you were a yeah. fat body. <laughs> <laughs> I had a son so, that was an X-Man. Yeah, they had the X on the back of the helmet. And yeah. Yo, really? He had to run yeah. laps in the parking lot before weigh-ins to get underneath the <laughs> Take the X fifth off. grade. Yeah, it was remarkable. Now he's fantastic. He's a lean, mean fighting machine. Yeah. But back when he was little, man, whoo. Yeah, so – but yeah, so the diet private, they, you get a tray full of food and stand there, and the drill instructor would come up and say, "Don't eat that, don't eat that, and don't eat that." Go, and you had to report back with the food still. Oh, in. they left it on your plate to look at. Or that, or they gave it to the skinny guys that had yeah, double rat. That's what John said. John ration. said they give it to the the scrawny. Yeah, double the, rat privates. Yeah. <laughs> so. John said he would lay in his bed at night in his bunk just. He couldn't sleep. He was so hungry. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding about eating toothpaste. I got hungry one time and just got a big old finger full of toothpaste and ate it because I was hungry. I was hungry. I but, love you, John. <laughs> yeah. Simplify, John. Uh, so, yeah, I'd been on 
Always hungry. Yeah. yeah. He's eating right now as we're recording this. I guarantee he's over there. Simper feed. He, yeah. And what's, the, what's the Latin for hungry? Simper, whatever. Um, but I so I but I had that surgery which caused me uh, to to gain weight before I went to the MP battalion MP battalion and uh, so they gave me six months to lose X number of pounds and um, I did it in four uh, you know worked out all the time I think when I came out of the when I came out of the desert twenty nine palms in in eighty eight I weighed one hundred and sixty two pounds or something i mean it was i was in really really good shape and uh then gained some going to mp battalion so then that was my next sort of charlie brown moment mm-hmm. um is that august of 89 it's well that was the culmination of it but okay. it started about probably i would think march or april of that year they selected me to go to nco school um which is a something that you have to do to be a sergeant in the Marine Corps. You got to, you know, unless you get meritoriously promoted. And I wasn't like a stellar Marine, you know, or anything. But um, so they send me to this NCO school, and I was excited about it. Uh, first thing they do is weigh in and a PT test. So weigh in comes, I'm, I think I was eight pounds. My max weight I could be in the Marine Corps was 186 for my height. And I was what about nine one ninety four something like that. So, uh, all right, you're overweight, and then there was, go to do the PT test. And I never had a really problem with sit ups. I could do the max number of sit ups in two minutes. Pull ups, I never did. I did the max a couple of times, which was twenty. Um, but then you had to do a three mile run in twenty eight minutes or less. Never had a problem with it. I wasn't really the ever the fastest one, but I was always around 24, 25 minutes cons- uh, consistently. And I crossed the finish line on this run, and they said, 30 minutes, 30 seconds, you failed. And 30 minutes? Yeah, 30 minutes and 30 seconds. I'll never forget the time. So I said, I started to protest respectfully. It was a staff sergeant or something. I said, I don't think that was three miles. Yeah, it was. You failed. You're going back to your unit. You know, you're get out of here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, boy, you know, what am I going to do now? So, um, so they sent me back to MP Battalion, and uh, I'm standing tall in front of the man, the first sergeant of the, of the company, the battalion first sergeant, I think. And he's a – so first sergeant in – Master sergeant are the same rank. Mm-hmm. First sergeants are kind of admin people. Like when you become a first sergeant, you can get sent to any unit mm-hmm. anywhere. Master sergeants stay in their MOS. So this guy's a first sergeant, but he was a grunt by trade, Vietnam veteran. And he's commissioned to chew in my butt. And I, I told him, I don't think that's, I don't think it was, I'm sorry, I don't yeah. think it was three miles. And he said, well, how far do you think it was? I said, well, four. And so he's in his head, he starts telling me, I mean, he starts yelling at me, telling me, well, I'm old and, you know, I don't know how old he was. He looked like shoe leather, but he was probably like yeah. 40. Um, yeah. That's really old now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's like, I'm a, however old and I can run. 
a 24-minute three miles, so you ought to be able to do 30 minutes in 28 minutes, you know, or three miles in 28 minutes. So I should have kept my mouth shut, but I was like, well, with all due respect, uh, you can't run four miles <laughs> in uh. 28 minutes either because that doesn't add up. So then I lost about four more pounds in my butt. And yeah. uh, he said, you're overweight. You're on weight control. You got three months to lose eight pounds, whatever. The kicker on all that is, is during that three months when I was on that weight control for b- failing a PT test, I got an award from the battalion commander for getting a high score on the PT test because we had our battalion PT test at, during that period of time. But I never could lose the weight, so they processed me for discharge. <clears throat> and during the well, my son Jack, I have my my oldest boy's my stepson, so he was two years old when we got married. Um, and then we had Jack in uh, August of '87, and then Yvonne was pregnant with Amanda when all this was going on. So they. Um, they just put they put me in dispatch, told me I was processing for discharge, and I still had three two and a half years left on my enlistment, you know. Um, and in August of '89 is when I got discharged. Twenty uh, sixth of August, Amanda was born on the eighth of September. No health insurance. Um, thank God for my parents. Thank God for my dad. He he continued. Yvonne's health insurance from her job she had. She had a job at Airwalk Shoes when they were first starting out. It was pretty cool. Oh, I remember those. A lot of yeah. free shoes. Um, but he continued her health insurance. So um, when I saw the writing on the wall, I started sending, mailing in applications, you know, to we didn't really have a place to go uh, with my, my parents. My mom was living in Illinois and my dad was living here in Dallas. He was the CEO of Pizza Inn um, at the time. So he's living off of Lovers and Tollway in a high-rise apartment. He really doesn't have room for three kids. and you know. So we went, we're going to San Antonio, we're, uh, moving in with her mom and uh, her mom and dad. And uh, so mailed in, I got scheduled for San Antonio police uh, testing, and I got scheduled for uh, Bear County Sheriff's Office testing. So, you know, I went and got me a job at the Benson Mazda selling cars. I think I sold one car in two months. And they told <laughs> yeah, me, I can't see you as a no. car salesman. I'm like, you want to buy it or not? You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, that was when the Miata came out. Oh, they were yeah. very hard to sell. Yeah. Uh, they, they were very easy to sell, but they were very hard to get your hands on one to yeah. sell it. Um, so, so I was collecting unemployment. And I was working at a bar as a bartender um, at, while I was processing for for the sheriff's department. I took their test first, and uh, the I went and took the San Antonio PD written test, which was, you know, at the time you had to spend the night to get an application. You had to stand in line literally all night at the East Side substation to get an application. Um, so there's you know five thousand people taking a test for maybe 50 spots i don't know and i failed the written test um there's it football again yeah you know, i've never failed a written test it's the only 
that I can remember. I don't think I've ever failed a test except that one. And <clears throat> so that day I had to work at the bar. So I'm all mad, go to work and I'm, you know, these people in there, it's dollar shots and dollar beers. I don't know anything about bartending. Classy joint. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah just awesome. <laughs> Breaking up fights, you know, that kind of thing. And, and acting like, Hey, you know, I'm a Marine, right? You know, trying to act yeah. tough. So people wouldn't fight in front of I was an, I'm an MP. Yeah. Yeah. You better stop it. Yeah. Uh, but I got the phone call from the sheriff's department at the bar that I was hired. They said, be here whatever day it was. I had like three days. Did you just so, take your apron off and leave it on the I, bar and walk out? There was probably 10 people in there. I threw 10 shot glasses on the bar, poured them all full. The owner came in and gave me a re- weird look, and I said, hey, I quit. <laughs> F you, yeah. F you, yeah, yeah. F you, yeah, you're cool, you're cool, and F you, yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, yeah, take this job. Yep, yep, that's, that's ba- funny. basically what it was. And uh, so, you know, so then I, I, I got to the sheriff's academy and find out that it's a jailer academy. That was in December the eighth of nineteen eighty nine is when I started uh, started there. Um. And I was like, what do you mean it's a jailer academy? And they were like, yeah, you just got hired to be a jailer, you know. You're, And the sheriff's department at the time didn't have an accredited peace officer academy. So I was like, well, what do you got to, you know. Like a bait and switch on you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, it, the fine print seems to be a common occurrence with yeah, you Yeah, by the yeah. way. They, yeah. they saw a puppy dog when they saw <laughs> you walking in. Yeah. But it was pretty cool. We had um, – there were three or four Marines in my class, in my academy class. One of them was a sergeant major, you know, like he had 30 years in the Marine Corps, and he had just gotten out, Henry Wesley. Uh, and uh, so he was obviously our class president right off the bat. But it was nine weeks and uh, some PT, not very hard. It wasn't anything compared to the Marine Corps. So, um, And then uh, – so then you, you do the nine-week academy, and then you have, I think, two weeks of on-the-job training. They call it OJT. It's like FTO training. You go up in the living unit and learn how to run the, the door locks and the panels. And it's um, – if you can imagine a big square room with a giant glass down diagonally down the, the middle, real thick, um, 42 cells on each side. And at the time, the jail was so overcrowded, I think, some of the units had three people to a cell. So I don't know, do the math on that one. It's 200 people you had to, inmates, you know, that you had to look out for all day. And, uh, but I had a good time. I worked in the jail for three and a half years, promoted to corporal, uh, took a test, promoted, and um, ended up, I worked a lot of good units. I worked the recreation, um, we were under a, a, descent, a consent decree at the time. So every inmate had to have an hour and a half of sunlight three days, three times a week or something. So I, I was the rec officer. A lot of tan inmates. Yeah, and I was a covered thing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so I had I had to do the ad, admin seg, you know, schedule their recreation and all that. You go to the living unit. They're, I mean, they're talking about you got Texas Syndicate, Crips, Bloods, 
whatever you can think of, not the Mexican mafia. They were housed up on the sixth floor. Um, why was but, that? What? Why did they? Why did they house them up? The, the Texas Syndicate and the Mexican Mafia, yeah. they'll kill each other on site. I mean, they, there were times when I would have the TS guys out on wreck and the Mexican Mafia were right above them, and they would just... Plotting their death. They would up. just talk trash to each other the whole time. And I'm, I mean, y'all just play handball and be quiet. You know, come on. Enjoy the sunlight. I mean, come uh, on. Yeah, we had, this, we had this kid in that unit. Uh, he was a Crip gang member and he had to go by himself because there were no more crips and i went to pick him up for wreck one day leg irons and handcuffs and he's talking trash the whole time to these ts guys right and so i take him for his hour a little hour and a half i don't know you know i just send him outside and go play come tell me when you're done you know and uh <clears throat> coming back uh he's he's in leg irons and handcuffs behind his back and it's my job to protect him. And Master Control opened the door on accident to the living unit. No. So I had to step in front of him. And, you know, the Texas Syndicate guys were going after him. I think I took a couple of punches. And, uh, you know, I was like, I'm pushing the button. Who the hell opened the door <laughs> after it was all done? Uh and they never did tell me. They were like, sorry about that. Yeah. You know? Sorry you almost um, died, but, the, but not the, bad. The Texas Syndicate guys were very respectful, though. They they apologized up and down. They were like, hey, you know, it's just business. We didn't mean it. We didn't mean that in a bad way, you know. Uh, well, how could that We were not just be trying to kill him on accident. Yeah. 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 Sorry. No, they didn't mean yeah. it in a bad way. How could We're that be taken in a good way? Completely sorry for punching you in yeah. the face. Yeah. 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 So um, getting out of the jail into patrol was the goal everybody's goal which is counterintuitive to dallas pd where everybody wants to get out of patrol right um so um the sheriff that we had when i first started there would just randomly walk around the jail and ask people if they wanted are you a peace officer do you want to go to patrol okay report tomorrow there was no rhyme or reason to it um like a lottery basically yeah one time they were they were rumor everybody started calling around saying the sheriff's walking around booking asking people to go to patrol and we were all banging on the dirt the master patrol wouldn't let us out of our we're like let me out of here um uh so but we got we got a new sheriff in i don't know what year it was but 90 i think he started in 93 but they did an entire hiring civil service hiring process for to go to patrol so um, I applied. I had to interview the whole everything you can imagine that you have to do here. I had to do the, again, and uh, I got picked. I had to give up my stripes and my pay. Uh, by the way, when I started there, it was uh, sixteen thousand eight hundred dollars a year. I thought that was pretty righteous money. Damn. No, <laughs> my I, I told Yvonne one time we were talking about it last night. My goal was to get us to $30,000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> That'll buy a lot of uh, air walks and pizza in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. no, I got free pizza. And your dad just had that in his, <laughs> in his pocket is walking around money. That's a, yeah, that's a, he had that in his shoe. Yeah. Um, but so I got picked and I got went to patrol. We did some sort of like six-week orientation school. And I made it, made it to patrol finally. I mean – Finally, that's that's been my goal 
you know what now i was 25 or something 26 what was that feeling like it was awesome when i got when i first started fto training it was it was crazy and it was awesome at the same time i mean it was because um we didn't have substations at the time so we we would go to detail in at the jail you know, mm-hmm. you know at the sheriff's office headquarters and then um pretty much as soon as you loaded your car and checked in service you were running code three somewhere to uh because there were a lot of unincorporated areas at the time i don't know if you all know san antonio but um a lot of almost everything outside of loop 410 was was county um and they, then they would annex every year. They would annex like half of, half a neighborhood, something like that, until they got all the way. They got to, to the point where they didn't have enough fire stations, so they quit annexing stuff. So sheriff's department's pretty big now. But we had about 150 deputies that were in patrol. I love the San Antonio area. I, was, I liked that a lot. It was fun. It was, it was one of the – it was so fun working there. I mean, it was it was – it was – it was crazy and it was fun. We, um, but you know, FTO training was supposed to be. Um, I can't even remember how long it was supposed to be. I think uh, fifteen weeks long or something like that. But about twelve weeks into that, our the patrol chief said, "You're done. We're too shorthanded. All of y'all, are, you're off training today." So. Um, that was cool. I remember. I still remember the first day I got in a squad car by myself. You know, we all remember that. I mean, uh, it was it was amazing. But so between I ten and Bandera Road was my district. Everything, every unincorporated area outside that. Um, that was initially my district, and by then we were on we were in substations, which were uh, volunteer fire departments. <laughs> they were abandoned you know they were um so we were working out of those uh it was it was a great time was there a chief on the department now that worked out there with you in that area there is uh yeah chief ramirez was on uh we did not know each other uh but ruben ramirez yeah he was he was on the sheriff's department and um i remember hearing rumors that two or three guys had gotten hired at DPD, how lucky they were. Because you had to have 45 hours of college, mm. and none of us did. You know, we were – we didn't have – Speaking of, how did you – I mean, when did you decide – how did DPD get in your path? I mean, what – well, did you get up here? Well, Larry Nichols. Uh, Shout out Larry. Yeah. Uh, he – we were in uh, – we were actually in the same series in boot camp, and we ended up – uh, in the, I think we were roommates in in MP school, and then so we just kept in touch. And uh, you know, I had gotten out because of the weight control thing, and uh, he stayed in. He was smart. He enlisted for four years. Uh, he stayed in until ninety, then moved here uh, to Dallas. And we would talk every once in a while. He'd tell me stories of about you know his antics at Southeast Patrol and. Um, I came up and rode with him a couple times. He kept on, you know, hounding me and hounding me. So, uh, 
we got to talking about because down down there I I got promoted to detective in '98. Um, after so that was five years in patrol, and you had somebody had to die or get fired or retire for you to get promoted. You know, um, funny story about getting promoted to detective. They uh, I scored number three on the test. And I didn't get promoted initially, so that's how many, you know, there was. Yeah, you were number one, you're not getting it. Yeah, you just had to wait. Well, a lieutenant got fired, which meant there was a running list. So somebody got promoted to lieutenant, somebody to sergeant. I got promoted to detective. Well, uh, I go through my little training as a detective down there, and uh, I got assigned to Knight's detective, like, for the whole county. So, like, 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. or whatever it was and uh, come to work one night and there's a letter in my box telling me you're demoted back to deputy. <laughs> I'm like, well, I guess that guy got his job back, you know. Um, another one of those. Charlie Brown, yeah. Yeah. Um, but our association, we had we had a fairly strong association they got with the sheriff and said, look, demotion's a little too, this is going in these people's records, you know. So they changed it to reassignment or something or another. And, uh, but they put me, I'd ended up in traffic. They put me back in traffic and it only lasted like three months and they re-promoted me. So not a big deal. Did that, did that experience, did it, did that make you the decision to go to Dallas easier? It did that in the money. Yeah. Um, I think our starting pay here was 28. Yeah. Something right. and change in 2000. And I was not making that much with uh, at, with ten years on, and being a basically a corporal detective. Um. So, well, Yvonne and I discussed it for a long time. I actually applied here in '98. After I went back to school during that time, <clears throat> we were on these cool twelve-hour shifts where we had four days a week off, and so I went back to school. And I got hounded about it. My, my buddy, what do you want to go get a degree for? You know, you know, why are you going to a advanced peace officer school? You think you're smarter than us? Yeah, you think you're some kind of you know genius? college boy? Yeah. So, uh, but no, I mean, I'm just been I'm driven. I can't not take a test, or you know, I've skipped one one promotion test in my whole career. Now you've done yeah. really well on promotion tests, if I remember correctly. You're usually at the top of the list. Well, yeah, I was on the top of our senior corporal list here, nineteen, number nineteen, I think I was. But there's like five hundred um, people taking that that test, so that's yeah, in the yeah. top ten percent for sure. Right. Well, yeah. And well, the first time I took the sergeant's test though, wasn't real good. <laughs> yeah, you, you no. skipped one there, huh? Yeah, yeah. I didn't do very well on that test. But then when we promoted together as sergeants, um, I think I was number four before the assessment center if i'm not mistaken i don't know um then i was 34 after they heard me talk and all that. So, <laughs> you showed them well when you when you got you decided to get to dallas larry kind of dragged you here and then the pay right when you yeah. decided to get here uh you went to the academy and I, was, so you saw, I saw in your bio you had a critical incident at northeast at northeast yeah what, ha- what happened on that? I had a really, I had a really good crash in San Antonio. Oh uh, yeah, tell us during, during a chase. 
I guess my almost died moments. I don't, you know. Um, yeah, I wanted to get. I wanted to tell this story because it's kind of funny. So we, there was at night. We I was working eight p.m. to eight a.m. and uh, when we went to detail, there was probably five of us. Yeah, on a good night. Um, so everybody knows Rudy's barbecue, right? Well, yeah, Rudy's. Rudy's barbecue. There used to be only be one, and it was on my beat. It was on my district. So. The guys, we all got together, and they said, hey, man, can you go pick up some Rudy's, you know, uh, for dinner? And we'll all meet up somewhere and eat. And I'm like, yeah. And I had a guy from the jail, a deputy from the jail, riding with me. Um, you could go put yourself through San Antonio College, which is what I did, the peace officer school. And then you got commissioned, so you could go come ride out or work extra jobs or whatever. And uh, so I had this guy with me. Well, we go pick up this food for everybody. And we're coming back and coming down 1604, and the dispatcher comes on the radio and says that uh, Bandera County Sheriff's Office is in chase, and they're coming towards San Antonio. So I'm like, hmm, what a coincidence. I'm right here at Bandera Road in 1604. So I drove. I was like, we're going to this, dude. And so I went out to the county line to wait for him. And here they come. It was Medina County and Bear County. They were in chase with the stolen car. And I got got in line, and I was, you know, following them. Basically, we were all in chase. Well, when we got to 1604 and Bandera Road, they all just slammed on their brakes and turned back around. Zone 4 is clear. It's yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a tape of it. It's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, I got on the radio, and I'm like, it was just like here, you know, we're – Okay, I'm the number one car. So the lieutenant gets on and, you know, asked me, well, what offenses do we have, you know, and I'm making stuff up. You know, I was like, well, all we're doing is really driving fast. But driving recklessly, you know, this and that. So he said, we'll take it. And I'm like, all right, cool. Well, we get down to, um, you know, we passed Leon Valley PD sitting in the median waving at me and San Antonio's not getting in it. And uh, I think it's past the statute of limitations on this, but my buddy from Helotus PD stayed with me for a long time at the risk of his behind. That's, that's a long ways from where you started. Yeah, it's it's a long way. It's a long way. Um, he's now the chief down there. So hi, Rob. <laughs> Sorry, I snitched you off after all these years. Uh, I don't know if he'll hear this or not, but uh, he's gonna get uh, demoted. Uh, a yeah. month after this comes out. Yeah, the mayor's going to fire him. Yeah. You chased somebody 30 years ago? This was 94. Um, well, this kid, he he pulled into a – well, he didn't pull in, but he went into the Handy Andy parking lot, and I was driving a 93 Crown Vic, and they, they have a very small master cylinder. So when you're using the brakes and the steering and all that um, – they tend to uh, lock up, and that's what happened to my <laughs> vehicle. So the steering locked up on me. I flew 15 feet into a tree, um, airbag deployment, whole whole nine yards, and uh, I wasn't hurt. They thought I had a broken arm, but it, it ended up being broken. And uh, so I'm sitting in the back of the ambulance with one of those air splints on my arm, mm -hmm. smoking a cigarette, and they were like, one of the deputies walked up and they said, "Hey, uh, are you okay?" And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "Hey, did you uh, get that food?" 
<laughs> and I'm like, yes. Can, can I get your keys, man? <laughs> and they started eating the Rudies at the, at the scene. They probably were. Yeah. I don't know. They carted me off to the hospital. but um, <laughs> Got to climb the tree to get at the car. Yeah. The other thing they did was, um, I don't know if I had an MDT in that car or not, but if I did, there wasn't call sheets or anything. You had to pull over to the side of the road and write down your calls when you were when they were giving you a call. They tell you to stand by to copy a call and you pull over. And I had like four calls on there, and they wrote number five and they wrote crash about six <laughs> inch letters. That was your fifth call of the night. You had to get the mark. Yeah, smart asses. But <laughs> um, so, but anyway, yeah. So fast forward to this. Um, this deal up at Northeast, we were, uh, Jay Darst and I were riding together yeah. and, uh, and Hey Jay, um, they're begging for somebody to take this call. It was a, I think it was a res- residential alarm or somebody, the lady was calling in that somebody was breaking in her house. And, uh, I was like, I said, Jay, man, you know, this calls BS. Let's take this and we'll go eat, you know, we'll ride it and go. <laughs> go to ihop famous last words mm-hmm. yeah 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 famous last words of a fool so he's like all right so we get there we walk around the house we don't see anything so i called her on the bat phone in the car and she's going crazy there's somebody in her house and i asked her if she had any children yes my son's here and he's terrified please save me you know so you know, it's our SOP. I called the sergeant. I said, Sarge, we're going to kick this door in. You know, and he said, all right, you know, I'll be there. I'm, I'm on the way. So go around back, and uh, and I opened the storm door, which was made out of glass, and uh, just kind of a joke. I said, hey, age before beauty, Jay, you're kicking. I'm holding, you know. So Jay commences to kick in this door. We're yelling police, you know, like we're supposed to and everything. And the door flies open, always comes back shut, you know, always happens. Well, I bend down. You know how you crouch down to to draw your weapon? You kind of crouch a little bit. Three shots came through the door right over my head, three gunshots. So broke the glass, you know, that stuff. And uh, so we skinned out of there. We took off running, got around the corner of the house you know and we were yelling I, I was yelling on the radio jay wasn't he was calm uh but um so uh come to realize that uh that the when you know then it gets real quiet so you hear sirens and all that stuff and then i hear this guy yelling hey officer <laughs> I'm really sorry, oh, you know. Homeowner? Homeowner. Oh, man. His, He's the son. He was about 55. His mother was having delusions and uh, calling 911 and saying somebody was breaking in their house. So we made him come out the house with his hands, you know, and I started telling him to get on the ground. He's in his tidy whities you know. I was like, don't get on the ground. Don't just stand there. There's glass everywhere, you know. And uh, so it was It was crazy. I mean, it was like uh, I remember telling Jay, it's a good thing I was holding the door and you and you were kicking because he's about a head taller than I am, you know. Yeah. And it would have been – I said, you would have had a bad headache by now, you know. Uh, <laughs> and the guy's tidy whities are probably stained after that, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, that was that was a crazy, crazy deal. I actually had a flashback on that one time. It was nuts. Really? Mm-hmm. So coming from the county and coming up to Dallas, in that incident happening, what did you learn about yourself and also about the job and the differences working in a big city? Uh, working in a big city, you get a lot of experience a lot quicker. Uh, so down there, we didn't have, there was no such thing as two man call. You know, if you had, if you called for cover, it may be 20 minutes. So we were a hundred miles an hour, literally everywhere we went because we were trying to go cover each other. And, um, you know, here it's a luxury having, having somebody cover you is like, okay, you know, what do I, mandatory two man call? What's, you know, I remember reading the SOP and I was thinking, what is that all about? How can I handle a family disturbance? You know, but it's a lot, people were a lot more compliant there. Um, but you had to talk a lot more trash when you're at somebody's house and they're trying not to comply with you. You know, you had to think of things to say to them that would cause them to realize that you will kill them if they, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm going it's home. Verbal so, judo. Just so, you know, yeah. Verbal judo with a gun though. Yeah. So we talked about your, your dad, not really liking you going into the Marines. Um, and now you've been married for several years through the your service with the military and then Bear County Sheriff's Department and now you're moving to Dallas. How does your family support that? I mean, entirely your wife, your dad, your mother? Uh Yvonne's Yvonne has never not supported me. She's been she's my she's she's always been supportive. Um she's my rock. So she she just she told me I ain't moving to Houston. <laughs> and don't even think about Austin. That's where she drew the line. Houston. Yeah. Okay. That's what I, she told me that. She's like, I'm not going to Houston. So, um, yeah, my dad was very proud of me. I think he's he's been gone for several for twenty something years now. But um, yeah, I think he was very proud of me in the end. So uh, he told me one time he came to my graduation at the sheriff's department. He said, "You know, you've been wanting to do this for a long time, haven't you?" And I said, "Yeah, you know." He said, well, "Good for you, you know." And he was very supportive. I mean, you know, he would he when he came to visit, he would like slip me a hundred bucks. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> you know, go buy yourself something. You know that that kind of thing. Because well, I mean, we like I had to put my first vest on layaway at Sam's. We they didn't issue vests at the sheriff's office. Uh, bought my own gun. My own it was a revolver. Um, well, I was issued a Glock when I went to patrol, but. Um, we, you know, we we had some lean times. I mean, we had back in Oceanside in the eighties. You know, you're paying six hundred dollars a month for rent, and I think we had twelve dollars disposable income. Like at 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 one point, I worked at Domino's, and I was an MP. You know, and ate pizza for dinner probably every night, uh, and ramen. And I still can't eat ramen. Dad wasn't a big fan of you working at Domino's with the pizza in factory. Huh? Yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was. He was in and out of Pizza Inn. I think he was in to Godfather's at the time or something. I don't know. I can't. I Is can't that even in, around anymore, Godfather's no, Pizza? I think it, I think it's it in a gas station. No. And you can get oh. Pizza Inn in gas stations now, too, so, <laughs> at the gas station. I, I get queasy thinking about gas station pizza, though. I can't eat it. It's like a burrito, yeah. getting a burrito at a gas station. Yeah. Hey, sometimes you got to take a chance, man. Yeah, you can. 
universalist, like empirical data. Godfather's Pizza loves it's the best. Yeah. Especially drunk. Pizza pizza's great when you're drunk. Godfather's was legit. Is but this is the Sicilian Topper Pizza Inn. That's my Jack Harris invented that. Nice. Big time. Yeah, he was a he was a, he, he would make us order pizza under pseudonyms. He had he had like four stores in southern Illinois at, at one time. And he he'd make us call and give like his fake name. Cause if they knew it was us, they would make it perfect. And then spend the next and we we're over there just chomping down this pizza's great and he was on the phone chewing the manager's ass because there was not enough cheese, too much cheese. The sauce was not right or something every time. The TV show always, Undercover Boss. That's, yeah, I was Jack Harris. That. Yeah. yeah. He did that one <laughs> Jack too. Jack Harris has been on the Undercover <laughs> yeah, Boss. Yeah, it'd be, yeah. Undercover Bosses. And he he worked, you know, I, he went had to go through that franchise school back in a long time ago in the 70s. And, uh, but, uh, but, yeah, what was the what were we talking about? Oh, we, <laughs> we were tangent. talking about pizza and the history of pizza and the evolution oh, of yeah. uh, Godfathers and, uh, <laughs> and Family Domino's. support. Yeah, you pizza. you. You kind of went somewhere with with your wife. She's a she's pretty important in your life, huh? Yeah, yeah. And my 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 kids, and I mean that's really kind of my why, I guess. You know, um, just driven to to do better and provide more things. I never was able to when they were when they were little. There wasn't no trips to Disneyland, and you know, my my I, we would go visit my parents, go to my dad's. lived He lived at. Later on in life, he lived in uh, at the Lake of the Ozarks. Had a boat and you know jet ski and all that. We'd take him up there, um, leave San Antonio at midnight, so they could all be asleep in a Honda. I mean, a Mazda Protege. <laughs> <laughs> Three kids and car top carrier, and then go to we'd go over to Terre Haute and, and uh, visit mom. And then you know that was our, basically our vacation every year. So. Things that all we had to pay for was gas and food, you know that kind of thing. Because it was money was tight. It was couldn't eat um, pizza every day. No. So I want to I want to get into an incident, but I want to talk about something that happened just right before that incident. You promoted, yes, and then something major on the department happened. Yeah, it was actually promotion day, uh, September sixth of oh six. Uh, Jeremy Borchert was shot over on uh, Northwest. At a hotel, yeah, and um, <clears throat> he was hit in the femoral artery through a, a wall. They were outside. They were actually there covering um, DFR DFD on a medical call. So the significant part about that, when I'm move on to my incident, is that there was an ambulance there at the time. Um, had there not been, things would have not been worked out for jeremy i mean the the emt saved his life and um so that was september 6th uh being number 19 out of 350 people on the list i had instantaneous seniority um we had a five-year rule because of the fake drug scandal can i say that oh yeah beat that out no it's it's part of dallas history and i had three and a half years in narcotics at the time and i wasn't i mean i wasn't number one let's just be honest i mean i'm not gonna i wasn't gonna get extended because it took an act of congress to get extend that five-year 
I think that ended up going away. Just yeah, not, it's gone. it didn't last very long. Um, so I applied for uh, a position in backgrounds in personnel in this during this three week time, and then then September the twenty eighth was it. Anyway, don't get me lying. I don't remember the the exact date. Yeah, uh, that's when that's when my we had the we went. Okay, yeah, I want I want to take that from the top. I want to how that day went with the the location y'all went. I I showed up way after the fact. Uh, I was on the CRT and we kind of just covered the perimeter on the shooting. Uh, it was out in the uh, Pleasant Grove area, North Pleasant Grove. Mm-hmm. Can I just want to walk through that entire day and how the, the the briefing and then also how the incident and, and and todd you were actually there yes and i want you to fill in some blanks of uh sure. what went on in this can you just kind of take yeah. it from the top major i remember it being just a normal day you know we used to um we were we were hitting we were hitting houses a lot uh, during that summer um i had just gotten off light duty actually in june i had to have elbow surgery for something that happened the year before um but it was like just a normal day, and we would hit. Sometimes we would hit three houses in a day. Um, All the time. You were only allowed to run three entries in a day. Um, I guess you could slam a door on your fourth one or something, or drive the fan, or. But we were running and gunning, as they say, you know, all the time. So it just seemed like a normal day. But I don't remember if we had any before that or not. I don't think so. I think that was the only yeah. one of the day. Yeah, and so. Um, Normal day, uh, new guy on the in narcotics was uh, the lead detective, and um, so you know he was in with the sergeant briefing. You know, and uh, I remember sitting out there in uh, filthy uh, Cam Francis, rest, rest in his, peace, rest in peace, uh, was putting uh, medical stuff into our warrant bag. And one of the things was one of those old yellow shooting up heroin tourniquet things. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's putting this stuff in his bag, and I'm over there messing with him. You know, I'm like, what are you doing? He said, well, think about it. Jeremy was out there. He had an ambulance on the scene when he got shot. We don't have doctors. We're not, we don't have a narc doc, right? SWAT has doctors that go with them on these things. And I was like, okay you know good idea kind of eye roll you know <laughs> right uh well that's the famous mindset, last words though. of a fool that's the mindset though it took it but if jeremy it makes me wonder if jeremy's when he got shot three weeks prior if filthy wouldn't have even yeah. even thought, yeah. you know, if that wasn't on top of his mind probably you know? not probably uh, not no and i think i don't know what he did in the navy but he was in vietnam in the navy i don't yeah, know I'm if not, he was a I'm medic not sure. or, or not but he sounded like a medic later on but uh so we briefed the warrant just like normal um they had uh sergeant kaiser had me number five in the stack which honestly kind of cheesed me off um because uh i think i had more warrants under my belt than anybody on the team so you know how egos go right i should be going in the door first um so uh, number five, I had a new guy running behind me, and maybe that's why I was number five, um, because new guy wasn't real strong operator. If can can we call ourselves operators, or is that only SWAT? 
I don't. I don't Can know. We get if ruling it's on this. Yes, I'll allow it. Okay. I'll allow <laughs> it. You know what, Gretchen? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> she allow it. She allows it. We yeah, you got voted yeah. in. So we we uh, we ran warrants with uh, every other team member had an MP5 nine millimeter. Um, the number two guy would have a, uh, a pistol, whatever he was issued. Um, and we ran in two man teams, so you stayed with your you stayed with your wingman the whole time you were doing your entry. Um, no leapfrogging. We weren't that advanced because that's really an advanced type of two man dynamic. Two man dynamic, right? Entries. And, and yeah, which has kind of gone the, the way yeah. of the past. Now it's uh, different different right. techniques now. Yeah. So, um, so we briefed the warrant. I don't think there was anything outstanding about. There wasn't any pre planned. I do remember Stunts. the the lead detective. Um, he he got the warrant signed that that day, and came to us and and said, um, "This should be quick and easy. We should we should hit this house and be in and out of there real fast." Yeah, and which everybody kind of you know that's famous last words. You never want to say this will be an easy one. We'll be done real quick. Right. It obviously ended up different than that. Yeah, that's like saying. That's like washing your car. Right. It's, it's going to rain 10 minutes later. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so he briefed the warrant. You know, we're going, I think it was 930 at night. I went and I went and reviewed the case the other day. The internal affairs still has it. Um, so, yeah, it was like 930. Yeah. Um, and um, we, um, so we approached, it was a side entry house. Um, you're going to have to fill in a lot of blanks. We'll talk about, like, I want to talk about auditory exclusion and, and that, and whatever visual exclusion is called. I had the same um, experience. Yep. Did you? Yes. Yeah. So, um, we, we approached the house and my assignment was to, to, uh, cover off the window next to the front, to the door, which I'd say the front door, but it was on the side of the house. So we had to go down a brick, basically a brick wall down the sidewalk right and so i was covering off the the window and it's funny because the way your brain works because the, the first time you ever run a warrant you don't see anything you know you could run by an elephant and you wouldn't see it the the hundred and whatever time i don't know how many warrants i ran but it's like you're standing in line at 7-Eleven. I mean, right. it really is. It feels very slow. Right? You guys have done – I mean, it's – it's a, you see everything that's happening. You know, you don't pre-plan which way you're going to go into a house ever because you have to go to the threat. Um, but – so it's just normal. I'm just holding off. I'm like, okay, let's go. Come on. Let's do, get this done. We're get out of here. And uh, so Filthy slammed the door and – I know this now because I saw pictures the other day, but there's a wall right inside the door, right? And um, there was a female either coming to the door or standing there, took off running, always happens. So Ben and who was running behind him? Ben Ortiz uh, was one, and I believe it was uh, Mike McGee ran too. Mike McGee, maybe, yeah. Yeah, because Mike McGee, I don't know if you even remember this, um it seems like if something's going to go wrong, you know, Murphy's Law, it'll happen. Uh, Mike was going to throw a stun, 
And at the time, the technique was you always wanted to get the stun thrown deep into the house. And if you remember, Mike pulled the pin on the, the stun device and ended up hitting the door frame. And it fell on the ground yeah, right at the door. Yeah. And we ended up basically stunning the whole entry team yeah. on entry. And we, uh, you know, we, we ended up going in yeah. and after being stunned. Hey, real quick, Todd, can you just tell the listener what you're talking about, the stun? He explained that, what that is and why it's used. Yeah, it's a, basically a flashbang device. It's uh, used to, if, if you know there's individuals inside, it's basically, basically a distraction technique to, uh, to draw attention uh, away from the entry team while you're making entry into the house. So you want the stun into the house to, to draw attention to it while the, while the team makes entry. And I'm sure Sergeant Wolverton could probably uh, give you a little more detail no, on the stun device. You nailed it. Perfect. Got it. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> nailed it. Perfect 10. Yeah. So I don't know. That's probably the f- fourth or fifth time that I've had a stun go off at my feet. Right. You know, it just happens. Um, um, you know, you just – it's counterintuitive to close your eyes when because you're trying to cover off a window, but you got to close your eyes or you, you're going to be blind. Um, so Ben and uh, I guess Mike, they go take it off after the runner to the left. And I see you guys, there was another runner, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there was a hallway to the right, if I remember. And uh, yeah. I, was, I was running four behind Scott Shepard. Uh, and Scott broke to the right. Yeah. And I went – I went with him. Yeah. So I'm going straight. They they all peeled off. So now I decide I'm going straight. And um I think I took maybe two steps into the into the house, maybe two steps. And there was an individual across the living room in a bedroom behind a dresser, knelt down, started firing at us. So um I have an MP5 on full automatic with 60 rounds. You know, I've got two magazines side by side. So I start going towards them. I'm in my butt's in the breeze here, right? I don't have any cover. So I got to take out the threat. There's uh, my partner behind me, um, the slammer, the sergeant, you know, this, somebody's right. We got to get this guy. So I just start walking towards, from what I remember, I mean, it only lasted. A matter of just seconds but my i guess my plan was to walk towards him and i was firing you know three or four round bursts um and muzzle flashes kept coming so i um my first it's it's these emotions last milliseconds but my first thing was you know the scenario we always did in warrant training where as soon as you breach the door you take fire Oh, this is the, you know, this is the, hey, I'm getting shot at. Right. Uh, Done it several times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens every every quarter, you know, but then then instantaneously you realize that, hey, this is the real thing, you know. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's that was next for me that I can remember. And now I don't remember anything about the house. Um in my mind's eye, all I can see is fog and muzzle blasts when I, and they only fired three rounds at us during this whole thing. So, um, the next thing was, uh, oh crap, this is real, you know? Um, and then the next thing was, why is he still shooting? Because I'm firing. I mean, my rounds are going right on this guy. 
Um, and then the next thing was like, I guess I, what I could call like a controlled panic. Um, like, man, I'm going to get hit. I'm, this guy's not, what is going on here? You know? Um, and then, um, right simultaneously to me on his third round, my leg went completely, it knocked me. My, it was like uh, somebody was hiding around the corner and hit me with a sledgehammer in my leg to my left from left from right to left knocked me down um there was a couch i know this because i saw the pictures um there was a couch inside the door up against the window to the left to, to the, the left door yeah yeah so i landed on that couch probably as i was still firing because i think some of the rounds went up back down um then uh the the most the craziest rage i've ever felt in my life um came to came to me um uh it was i was fear i was fear, furious is not even a good word for it it was just rage like and ben told me that when he was coming back up the little hallway all he saw was me sit back up and yell expletives. I don't want to. I love you. My yeah, yeah. I, I love you, man. <laughs> um, my mom might hear this, so I'm not going to say. But, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, he said that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in his life. He said you sat back up and yelled and just started firing again. You know, because now I'm I'm pissed. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so. I ran that first 30 round magazine dry and, um, the, the shot, I knew I was hit. I knew I was shot. Um, but there wasn't any pain at the first. It was like, um, um, almost like an electrical shock, like a funny bone times a million, you know, you hit your funny bone. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it felt like. But, um, MP5 runs dry, and I have reloaded an MP5 a million times. Not really, but a lot, thousands of times. All you have to do is open the bolt, pop the magazine out, move it an inch and a half over, pop the next one back in. They're uh, they're hooked together with the metal clip, and then let the bolt go home. While I was trying to do that, the, the door to the bedroom slammed. Closed, right? Closed. He slammed the door closed. I guess he gave up. He figured he had a rifle, I mean, a revolver against an MP5. Um, so I was trying, then my brain kept telling me to transition my pistol, and but the pain set in. So I was done after that. When the pain, when I started feeling the pain, it was excruciating pain. Just, I couldn't function. Um, you know your dexterity goes away when you what part of the leg uh just below my knee on my on the side of my leg okay yeah so what happened when you lost your dexterity lost basically fun- bodily functions right you just kind of yeah. just so describe that please well so we had to, we have a drill in in the we teach it in the warrant school um if you're somebody in front of you goes down you get in front of them you have a heavy vest on you get in front of them, you kneel down, you cover them off, and you yell, officer, down. So it just, in my mind, I remember saying to my partner, hey, I'm hit. 
And he said, yes, or I know, or something like that. And I said, remember your training. Yell out. Come you know, on. I start coaching this guy. I'm like, get me out of this house. Come on. You know, what you um not 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 the strongest operator in the in the world. Definitely not. Um, and I think the decision was made at his recent. It was a recent school to let him run in the back till he get got up to speed. So it is what it is. Uh, but uh, anyway, so so he starts yelling out, and I'm telling him. I think I told him yell louder. I don't think anybody heard you. You know, I, my ears weren't working, and. Uh, and so these guys all came and they got me out of the house. They evacuated me out. Um, Pat Boyette came up. He was the van driver. You can tell that. that uh, I, at one point, he grabbed my leg. They said somebody said, "Get his leg," and he grabbed the shot leg. And it made we, me scream we didn't know like where it. you were hit at the time. Yeah, we knew you were hit. We didn't know where. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but but Pat uh, Pat was my normal number one. I ran behind Pat most often, and. Uh, uh, Pat had had a, a, a procedure done that day and, and was just going to be the van driver. Uh, he, he was wearing, if I recall, he was wearing shorts, uh, flip-flops, uh, a heavy vest, and a helmet that day because he was, he was planning awesome. on driving the van and only staying in the van. That sounds very narcotics-like. Yeah, yeah. was definitely In 06, that was definitely a very narcotics thing to do. Um, so he was going to be the van driver, and he ended up, coming into the house after hearing the shots and um as as mark was being extracted from the house uh he actually that's when he i think grabbed your leg Mm -hmm. Uh, filthy was dragging you out of the house and it seems you know murphy's law uh you know filthy was the slammer and as he's dragging you out of the house i remember he tripped over the slammer carrying you out of the house which caused him to fall and caused you more pain yeah um yeah and then my i think my partner was helping and he actually landed on the slammer ended up cracking some ribs right, or something. right yeah. it was in the wrong spot but yeah, yeah pat ended up using your mp5 to help clear the house um after you had, and and i remember pat saying you know after things settled down a little bit he realized that the mp5 he was using your mp5 had stovepiped the round had stovepiped and jammed and so he was clearing the house with an mp5 that never would have fired another round if it had needed to oh boy so yeah so yeah so then you know i earlier i was messing with filthy about his little makeshift first aid kit and uh so they dragged me out in the front front yard of this house and and jeremy borchard immediately came to my mind i can feel blood coming out of my leg um I don't have an ambulance here. You know, is this it for me? I don't know where I'm bleeding from. Um, yeah. Where were you um, shot at? What part of your leg? In the lower leg, just 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 below my uh, my knee calf, about two inches below my knee. It came out the back of my leg. So, and Todd, did you? At what point did y'all find, realize where he was hit? Uh, we didn't. I don't think we knew where he was hit until. Uh, maybe several hours later. Oh, I, mean, I, I mean, we realized he was hitting the leg, but not not a uh, not instantly. I mean, it wasn't. We didn't know instantly where he was hit. We we knew it was his leg, but not exactly where in the leg. Yeah. That's why I wanted I'm, I wanted to have Todd on. You know, uh, nicknamed T Bone, by the way. Thank you. He uh, 
I knew I wanted his perspective because Mark is dealing with the physical pain, the mental anguish, and and just the the tunnel vision from his perspective. And I wanted you to come on to, you know, to give your side because the now and he was shooting at the shooter. With the, the guy never shot another round. Was he hit? The the behind the behind no, the he was not hit, wow. and okay. it, which was actually amazing because Mark squeezed off those 30 rounds out of that magazine and and the guy had laid down flat on the ground and you know there was so many bullet holes in that wall i don't know how he wasn't hit it was it was pretty remarkable that that mark didn't even land a shot on him um but there's so many things when i look back at it now that are that we do differently that that we we kind of uh you know at that time we didn't never mind comms devices we didn't even run with radios. No. I think the sergeant was the only one that had a radio. Kaiser was the only one that had a radio. We didn't. We had no communications between each other or uh, cover elements to that we we may need. You know, we we didn't. The sergeant had a radio if if he needed to call an ambulance, and that was it. We've had several, you know, uh, dark days in DPD for in, from narcotics. You know, uh, Lord. You know Lawrence Kadena. He he was uh, shot and killed on a on a uh, on a drug deal and uh, gone bad. And then also uh, Larry Bromley. We've spoke on uh, the Claggetts talked about him and um, and and Bob Owens. But do did any of those cross your? I mean, y- y'all know the history of narcotics when y'all get there, and y'all know the the fallen officers we had that that have been on those operations. Do those flash to y'all's head when y'all go to this? I, I think. I, I, for me, anyway, I think Jeremy Borchard was more on our mind because it, it was so yeah. recent yeah. before this. Then I, I wasn't in narcotics when when we lost uh, mm-hmm. those those senior officers, uh, so those didn't necessarily come to my head. But I do remember thinking how soon this was after Jeremy's incident. What did y'all learn? You said y'all didn't have comms. What else did you learn from from this particular warrant? What could it have been done better? Uh, well, we didn't have comms, which was, was the main thing. We didn't, um, from what I remember, most of us didn't even carry a cell phone on us at the time. And the only reason I think about that is because I, I did have a cell phone on me. Um, and after the warrant was over and, and secured and, and, and Mark was probably loaded into an ambulance by this time, I had my cell phone and my phone kept ringing. Um, in my pocket, I could feel it vibrating in my pocket, and finally we were we were in the the house debriefing, and I answered the phone, and and it was my brother who's who's an officer also, um, and he called me and he said, "Hey, I heard narcotics was in a shooting. Are you okay?" And I said, "Yeah, it's not me. Call everybody in the family and let them know it wasn't me that was that was hurt," and I ended up lending my phone to everyone on the warrant team so that they could all call their families and let them all know that we weren't that they are not we're not the ones that was injured you know we, it was mark that was 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 the hurt one but that was something that, i mean that's not necessarily a a, a a a tactic but it just seems things are so different now than, yeah. they, than they were then yeah you think about it, everybody's got a cell phone in their right. pocket now yeah not we weren't even carrying them with us on the warrant you know right it wasn't until just recently though that narcotics started using radios on every operator correct i mean it's been the last few years um i think they all have comms now uh we, we all we all started carrying a radio much more uh much not long after this but but now they do have the actual comms the the, the listening and speaking devices now 
I want to talk about two things you said. You verbalized, remember your training. You told somebody, remember your training. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I've heard your story, but that's not the first time I've heard that you said that. Like, really? Around the department, people are talking about what you did. And granted, this is almost 20 years ago at this point, right? I mean, this is a long time ago. But people remember the fact that you were cognizant and you were aware enough to say, hey, remember your training. As you're the one who was shot, you're <laughs> speaking to a junior guy and you're telling him what's going on. I think that's huge. And you just barely brushed over it. So I wanted to commend you on that. It's That's a fantastic job. Thank you. Um, the other thing is we keep talking about tunnel vision and how you didn't see things. And, and true enough, your your vision starts to become obscured a little bit. You, you don't see as much, mm-hmm. but your mind was still really working. I mean, you were thinking Jeremy Borchard, right? You've just been shot, and you're thinking this guy was saved because there was an ambulance. Like, now nah, I need to get myself fixed. You know, there's there's a yeah. lot going on in your brain, and I think – it's difficult because as police officers, we're not really self-aware, but there's a lot of credit that needs to be given for the things that you did in that situation because of where your mind was at, not necessarily what your vision was doing, but the tunnel vision. I think sometimes we think about that's the only thing you're focused on visually maybe, but your, your brain function was spot on in this entire deal. I appreciate that. You know, I always wondered um, going through all that training that we did, right. would I react correctly? And I think I did. I mean, you know, that, but I didn't really look at it that way. I didn't know that anybody knew that. No, that, I mean, that story's I, out did. there. Huh. <laughs> well, we're okay. Are you going to hold a football up and <laughs> ask me to kick it now? <laughs> it's coming. Do you think your rage helped you push through your pain? And do you think your rage kind of helped you stay focused and in that fight? I think so, yeah. I mean, it was something that I've never felt since or before. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it kept me it kept me in the fight, so definitely. Was, was there even an ambulance staged at all prior to this? No. No. No, we didn't, we didn't do any of that stuff uh, unless we – no, we just don't stage ambulances. But, uh, but no, they – and then I, I, remember, I remember hearing them call for two more ambulances on the radio and thinking, well, I hope not another officer is hurt, but good. You know, I, I thought they were calling for an ambulance for the suspect. I mean, I'm sorry to, that I felt that way, but that's what I, that's what I felt. Yeah. And, uh, but, but yeah, so, so filthy comes up with the, the warrant bag and he's, I don't know if he cut my pant leg or pulled my pant leg up. Um, but he started very matter-of-factly telling me, you're bleeding pretty good, but it's a through-and-through wound. You're going to be fine. Quit your crying. You know, that, <laughs> he didn't say that. but yeah. he, Suck it up. But, it, it, yeah, if you remember him, he's just like, ah, you know, you're, you're going to be fine. I'm going to help you. And – uh and I remember him yelling. He kept yelling at somebody to hold the light on my leg. Um, it was like because flashbangs were going off inside the house. Yeah. And there was some some officer. I wish I knew who it was. He said that guy. It was like trying to fix the engine with your son. You know, when he's holding the light, <laughs> keeps on getting distracted. And uh, he was telling me that later on. But, um, but yeah. So it didn't take very long for the ambulance to get there. Um. This was a uh, it was a friendly fire incident. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Didn't find that out until 
probably three days after. When when Gretchen she asked you about the rage, do you remember what what was the rage directed at in, in your mind? If you can remember, like when you you just the pain you, you knew you got hit. Did you think the suspect hit you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because in my mind, still in my memory, the third round put my leg out from under me. Under me. I mean, we we all thought the suspect had was was the one yeah. that had had shot Mark. I mean, the offense report says that. Um, you know, so of course it's been supplemented probably, but yeah. <laughs> just, uh, just through f- later on the investigation, it was determined that, yeah. So, um, I it was, I didn't find out until about three or four days after I got home from the hospital. Um, but yeah, they, um, my partner, I think that night told them he realized that w- that he had shot me in the leg so i think he told the supervisor that night and uh uh jeff kaiser kind of i think the way it was presented to him was he wasn't sure he he thought maybe that he had shot you in the back of the leg but but uh he told jeff that um that he thought it might have been his round that he he uh squeezed a round off before he was on target obviously and, Mm -hmm. and put one in the back of your leg and I think that just because of where the shot is, that he was moving to triangulate. He he was there was a there were two people that were hit that weren't involved in the gunfight. Just people that were there at the trap house between um, you and the suspect. They were between yeah. us. They were in the crossfire, and I think at one point my partner may have seen a muzzle blast come from around one of those people's hands. So he was in the gunfight. But like you said, he just he squeezed off around before he was on target. So there, you know. there's been a lot. I mean, there's we've lost officers uh, from friendly fire and uh, and actually in in that division. In friendly fire, it happens more often than than you would think, especially in the military. There's a lot of there's a lot of, in combat. There's a lot of soldiers that were killed by friendly fire. Right. So. I want to get into your physical recovery and then also the mental recovery on this. So when you get, when you get transported, you go to the hospital and you get released. Uh, tell, tell us about that. Uh, well, when, when I, uh, when I got out of the hospital, uh, the guys came, a bunch of them came to the hospital with the raid van. So uh, when I was released from the hospital, the uh, the guys came in the van, uh, the raid van, and asked my wife if they could take me home. Uh, <clears throat> because I didn't get to go home five days earlier, whatever it was. Uh, of course, yeah, she said, no problem, and... Uh, so we go out there. I'm on crutches. I have a rod and uh, and I think five screws in my leg still to this day. Titanium rod. Uh, the bullet shattered my shin bone, and they didn't set the bone. They just put the rod in there and let it grow back. So it's a pretty thick shin bone now. Bionic leg. My, yep. Yeah, bionic leg. I don't go off at the airport though. <laughs> but anyhow, <clears throat> I got I got downstairs. And, you know, it's a big giant van. And I was like, I can't step up into this van. I can't put weight on this leg and I can't, you know, what am I going to do? Well, Jerry Wante P 
picked me up and put me in the van like I was a little kid. <laughs> and I weighed at the time I probably was two thirty. And I was like, oh, thanks, Jerry. You know <laughs> Jerry's strong. Yeah, he's pretty strong and Jerry's got a, a special strength to him. Yeah. Just like he don't even know he's strong. He's strong. But uh so yeah, they took they so they took me home, they got me in my uh Yvonne was there. Um I don't remember if the kids were there when I was when I was getting home. They'd probably were in school. Um they they all they all had come to the hospital that night, but um so she had me all set up, you know, leg propped up on the couch and then um they uh they those guys they said their goodbyes and they left and it was just silence you know um and i don't i don't even remember i mean i i remember at the time the gulf war was pretty intense in iraq so just i don't know why i even did this but i was talking to the national guard about joining the military again and uh you know they it was a unit out of wiley and i was trying to get them to, they wanted to make me an e4 like a specialist and like i was a corporal when i got out so i was like i can't have a mortgage and kids and i have a degree now you know can you maybe do a little way something? smarter than you guys know yeah i'm better than you people know uh no uh so i was talking to them about going and they one of the things that really deterred me is it was my daughter's senior year, and they said you're guaranteed. It's guaranteed if you enlist. We are going to Iraq in you know summer or whatever. Um. So, but I was still talking to him about it, and I had applied. Um. For backgrounds, if you remember me saying so, um, I um. Well, where was I getting at? Oh, I was sitting there on the couch and I was thinking, and I said, I said to Yvonne, I said, you know, I don't think I ever want to get in another firefight ever again <laughs> in my life. So the army can just go pound sand, you know. Right. Um, and that's when I I made the decision there early on after I got home. I'm not pursuing this military thing. That was stupid. I was almost forty years old. Um, so um, no. I decided not to do that, but, but yeah, after, and then, um, I don't remember if we even talked, if she and I talked about anything or not. I, I don't remember if we talked about, if I talked about it or said anything about it. I know there were people calling me, um, and really puffing my chest up, telling me, man, that was, you know, uh, Steve Sterling was our training sergeant. And he told me at the hospital, uh, you did the most excellent thing. Because they started teaching us a couple of years before that, that you can fire through sheetrock at people. You know, if you know where they are and you know your target, then um, he said, that was bet You did everything you were supposed to. I think he showed me a picture, like a Polaroid of the room. <laughs> Everybody's in there snapping Polaroids. And... um you know, Ben telling me all that, the coolest thing in the world, you know, ever. It was. Ever. It was like a movie, puffing my chest all up, you know. So I was pretty, um, I was kind of freaked out about everything that happened, but I was pretty happy uh, with 
with you know I, I mean I made it home I didn't there was a point in the front yard of that house where I questioned that um but you know I thought a lot about wife and kids and you know all that kind of stuff and um but then then the the rage kind of came back a little bit and it's no no it ain't gonna happen you know we're gonna and then filthy telling me that you know um so yeah and we were we were about to have our 20th anniversary a couple three weeks later october the 18th um so we just kind of started looking forward to that um what about your physical recovery? Did you go to therapy for anything and, and physical therapy to learn to do anything different? Was the wound that bad? No. Um, there's no joints involved. So um, I think I, I went to some – I did go to some therapy, physical therapy, just later on to make me put weight on my leg. Um, the doctor that, that fixed my leg um, was actually the same doctor that rebuilt Fred Catani's legs when he was hit on the motorcycle. One of the best uh, orthopedic trauma surgeons in the. I, I just lucked out that he was on duty. He was on call. Um, but he told me you can put weight on that leg. There's a rod there. It's holding you. That's your new bone. That wasn't happening for me. No. <laughs> so you know. what about the mental aspect there? Did you did you seek out any? Did you think you needed to talk to anybody? Did you want to do that? I didn't really think so. I mean, I was kind of. I was kind of high on the whole thing at the time. Right. Um, Doc Somadavia, love him to death, but he called me. I was sitting outside on my uh, patio smoking a cigarette, and he called me up and said, I hear, you know, I understand you were in a shooting. Yes. Uh, are you uh, sleeping? No, not really. Are you having nightmares? A uh, couple, you know flashback yeah well that's all normal it'll it'll fade and call me if you need me that was it so that was pretty much all i got from 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 that and it's not i'm not trying to fault anybody on that you know which no i you know you're not faulting anybody but that is that's what this department is trying to get away from the the check off the box go make the phone call because Lance Crawford, in his episode, he said something really quite similar of both of his shootings. Call Doctor Al. You sleeping good? Of course, he didn't tell Doc that he was actually not. He said, yeah, "I'm sleeping good." And he really wasn't. And and when we get a call from back then from like a professional, and and Kennedy had the same. Uh, he had the same kind of um, experience after seven seven. It was a check off the box. It was something you just had to do. It was like it was like in your shooting, y'all. I saw y'all y'all's photos of standing in front of PES and all your gear, taking the photos. That was just a pro- part of the process you wanted to right. get through so you could recover. Do you felt? Do you feel that you actually took the mental health recovery serious? Not not really. I didn't okay. think I, I didn't think it was going to affect me. Mm-hmm. I was um I was actually fascinated by the flashbacks. You know, because it's weird. Your mind can do some, yeah, some things. Um, so it was fascinating to me that that my mind could put me back in the moment like that. You know, just crazy. Do you still so, have flashbacks? No, not really. Mm-hmm. I, I about two years ago, just randomly, I was 
I think I had a couple of my grandkids in the car with me coming back from the park or something. I was pulling in my neighborhood. And for some reason, that shooting came to mind. And all of a sudden, I was just jolted, you know, to the point where when I came in, when I walked in the house, Yvonne said, what's the matter with you? What happened at the, you know, I said, nothing, you know, and she, she's persistent. So I ended up telling her, I don't know why, but I just had a flashback from 2006, you know, and she, she said, you know, you need to go maybe talk to somebody about that. And so I have since, you know, do you feel like that helped? Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just working through, I mean, I'm sorry. No, if, if, if you could go back and, and do it over again, what would you want to do differently as far as your mental health there? I, I would, I, at the time, I don't think that we all 100% trusted psych services. And I don't think I was aware of the ATO or uh, the counselors, if they were even, I don't think they were doing it then. Um, I don't think I was aware of it. So I, if I had to do it over again, especially after, um, especially after they called me and told me that I was shot by my partner because that changed the whole dynamic of the whole thing. Oh, for sure. That was like the football coming out from under, you know, that was Charlie Brown's back. Um, because then it becomes kind of a joke really. Um, in my experience, um, you know, like I was, I, I was telling a group the other day, when I was going through a class, I had to do a presentation and I was talking about this and I was saying it was not the other day. It was months ago, but, um, well, I had to do a presentation and I'm going through and I, you know, everybody's telling me all these great things about this incident and what's gone on. And, and now as years go by, not a whole lot of people know that it was a quote unquote friendly fire incident. You know, they just, they see the the award on my chest and they ask me about it and inevitably there's somebody there that I'll tell this whole story and they'll go wow and then they'll go yeah but tell them who shot you you know yeah I just like you just took all the you just you know you're not you're not going to take it away from me because I know I know what I did I survived and you know um but yeah after that when I found that out um Steve Lewillier called me and he didn't want to come out and say it. So he said, Hey, you were shot with a nine millimeter. And I was like, Okay. And the suspect had a thirty eight revolver. And I was like, Okay. And still didn't <laughs> He said, Well, either you or your partner shot you. And he we hang up the phone. We were at Hooters. My wife Yvonne got me out of the house, took me to Hooters to get some wings. <clears throat> and I was like, come on, let's go home. And it was devastating when, I mean, honestly, it was devastating when, so, but I I remember getting mad and I called him back and I said, I'm right-handed carrying a long gun. How am I going to shoot myself? He goes, I'm trying to tell you your partner shot you, you know, just finally he just came out and said it. So that was, that was when I should have actually gone and reached out to somebody. One thing I've always wondered, um, all the times we've talked about this, uh, have you ever talked with your partner about this happening? And uh, have you ever, um, I guess, uh, kind of uh, forgiven him for it? Yeah, there wasn't any. There was. I never had any animosity against him. He didn't do it on purpose. Um, but I'm. He got a similar phone call the same day I did. 
um, he called me and told me that if there was any way I could ever find it in my heart to 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 forgive him, then you know he would appreciate it. And I told him it's already done. You know, you're, I, you know, I'm not gonna. I don't hate him. You know, he didn't do it on purpose. He was inexperienced, and and that happens more than people know that officers squeeze off rounds as they're walking them. He was in the gunfight. He just fired a little bit too early, you know. Right. And so, yeah, and, and and we did have an opportunity at one time. We ended up, both of us ended up in personnel um, through a comedy of <laughs> event, uh, errors. Um, and we ended up having to go take a car to the garage together one time. So he asked me how I was doing and that kind of thing. And, and I said, I'm, you know, I'm fine. I saw him every day. He was in recruiting. I was in, um, in backgrounds. So, yeah, I don't have any, I, why? I mean, why carry that, you know? I have a just, question for you. Huh? So let's hope that nothing like this ever happens again in this department where there's that friendly fire incident. But should there be, what's some advice you could give to going back to work and seeing it's your a coworker that you're in a unit together and you guys like you guys drink together eat together know each other's families what's some some advice you could give about re-getting back into things and then also my other question is too was that kind of a shocking way to get that news that kind of that riddle to see if you were catching on or would you just rather he just told you straight up uh, well i'll answer the first one first i would have rather just been told straight up you know um because I remember saying, are you sure? You know, are you sure? And he's like, look, we dug a slug out of the carpet. It's got your DNA on it. You know, it came from his gun. You know, that's, yes, I'm sure, you know. So I would have rather just been told that. Um, and then the other thing is advice for going, for go, just people going back to work in general. Um, it's going to be weird. Um, I, I, so while I was out injured, I interviewed for, for backgrounds so i was transferred i remember um if i remember correctly my oldest son drove me down to headquarters and you know i hobbled into personnel did the interview of course they felt sorry for me because i was all messed up and gave me the job but so they transferred me like while i was out so i i was out from september to january and uh <clears throat> so that was a little weird coming to a new spot not getting to go back to narcotics well out of my by my own choice i could still be in narcotics if i wanted to um but uh yeah it was just it was just weird it was strange coming back and everybody's kind of looking you know and i was i didn't know that i couldn't wear a uniform on light duty so first day back i didn't have any magazines in my I don't know. Did I have a pistol? I don't know if I or not. But I was wearing my uniform. And the first thing, this just popped into my head. One of the sergeants said hello to me, and I said hi back. And the first thing he said was, where's your magazines? And I was like, they're in evidence somewhere? I don't know. And, well, you need to take care of that. You know, just like, and by the way, are you on light duty? Yeah, you're not allowed to wear a uniform. I'm like, welcome back to work. I'm like, okay, I didn't know that, but I'm not going home to change. So, (laughs) you know, 
uh, wasn't going to do anything that day anyway, learning stuff. But uh, but yeah, it's it's going to be weird. Just take it all in and and you know you kind of got to roll with it. I, I've always I don't get mad at people. I've I've been joked. I've heard every joke there is about this deal, um, and I don't get mad at people for it because they don't know the. It, but it's almost like it, it's almost like um, oh you're in this really cool incident or whatever you know oh but it was friendly fire oh well then there you know doesn't even count to and and it does count so if this ever happens to anybody else where it's a, a friendly fire incident it counts I mean it's it's gonna it's just as traumatic it's it maybe even more traumatic mm-hmm. and. You know, it it counts. So oh, well, it sounds like you're really emotionally mature to to get past all that and to forgive him just right off the bat. I think that speaks to your character and who you are as a person. And for the people who want to invalidate your experience, I say fuck them all the way to hell because <laughs> what you did, you keep go- you kept going and continued in that fight and then stayed in it even after that, even after being shot. And then you took that rage and you pointed someone else and you talked somebody who was more junior than you through it all like you commandeered a bunch of situations so yeah i know i've known you for a long time major and you you you're very you you don't you don't get angry you you're very even kill and and just hearing your response to to this and and the and the jokes yeah i've heard the jokes too and, and i think it's shitty i'll be honest and you know bob owens talked about that about you know cops kind of you know, we we all deal. We use humor to cope with stuff, and I'm you know we shit on each other pretty good. We yeah. do, mm-hmm. we do. But there, sometimes we do, and I and I and I'm sure I've been guilty of it too. To take it too far, where it we don't, you know, we all can see they can laugh it off, but then go home and it it affects people. You know, I think we should really yeah. do a better job of of taking that into account. Well, I've actually had. I just remember this one. We were we were leaving for lunch and personnel coming out that door under by the freight elevator, and my partner was walking out behind me, and I always when I open a door I turn around and look and see if there's anybody coming. It's just habit, so I hold the door for him, and he even said, "I I was holding the door." He's like, "Why are you looking back?" <laughs> like, <laughs> like shut up. <laughs> But, but yeah, well, it, all these different experiences have molded you into who you are today, and uh, even as a as a leader, and you've promoted. You're now a major, right? And you're a senior yeah. corporal. Whenever this incident happened, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you 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 had in your bio. You're talking about uh, you're affected. You 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 wrote an article for the the DPA the the Shield. That's our newsletter. I did. Right. And I told you. That, I mean, it's a fantastic letter, right? And an article yeah. and um, I want you to kind of talk about what what motivated you to write that, right? What it means to you, and then I want you to read the, the okay. article to the listener. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, so I I was always, um, when we do the police memorial, um, when we do the police memorial every year in May during the police week, uh, they have, they have, um, <laughs> they have, uh, you know, we do this deal where, uh, we have saluters, got officers volunteer and they, they march up there on the 
by the police memorial. And every time a name's called out, somebody salutes. It goes all all down the line. They're wearing white gloves and and the white rope around their uh, I don't know what that's called. It's a French fortege in the Marine Corps, but it's green. But it's a white thing, the rope thing. Um, and I'd been to that before, and it was coming up again. It was starting to come up again, and I was on, in personnel, so we were kind of helping out with the whole logistics of it. And I just got to thinking about, you know, it's amazing when they call these names out for officers who were killed in the 30s. There were family members there that stand up, you know, and so, you know, it just got it just got me thinking how close I really came to being one of those names uh, that time. I mean, just in particular, and the time, you know, the other time uh, up at Northeast, uh, and it just got me thinking. You know, there was a lot of stuff starting, all that rumbling about. I don't remember what year I wrote this. I think it was probably three, maybe four years after the shooting. Um, it just got me to thinking there was a lot of rumbling about, you know, um, police reform and all that kind of thing already at that time. And, and it just got me thinking, you know, I just wonder what's going through officers' minds when they're going through these incidents. So, you know, that was, that's why I, it just came to my mind. And I, <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's a fantastic article and, uh. I mean, Wolverton, you 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 remember it from the Shield? You yeah, said, yeah, I've I've got a weird habit of reading from cover to cover the the day it comes in. I basically walk in from the mailbox reading the Shield, and, and I remember reading the article. Well, yeah. for the listener, can, can, would you mind reading this? I'll try. <laughs> I'm already starting to get verklempt. Yeah. Well, Gretchen put a tissue box there right there for yeah. you. So, and, and hey, and I will say that whatever you. Whatever you cannot read, Todd will take it over, I think. <laughs> or we will pick it up. We'll and follow it. along. Yeah. It's, <laughs> okay. Uh, for the fallen officers, I stood at attention and I listened to all of your names being called. I grieved for each of you. I barely knew any of you, but as I hear your name, I want you back. I want to scream each name so I can hear it echo through the city. I listen to each name and I feel guilty. My name could have been added to the roll. We say there but for the grace of God go I, but I know that truly, but for his grace, they would be reading my name. I wonder as I stand there, when the time came, did you care about the politics? Or were you thinking of all the times you've been spat upon, both literally and figuratively? Or were you thinking of your wife and kids, your fiance, your mother? I see them in the crowd standing when your name is called, standing up for you for 20-plus years, always faithful to you, never forgetting your sacrifice. You were like me. You were my brother, my sister. We stand on that thin blue line and hold it every day. Without us, there would be no order. We know that, we know that but do they, do they even realize what this job takes from us? Do they know... There are some who would do this job for free. Do they realize some do it for next to nothing? This job, this profession, is like no other. Accountants, doctors, lawyers, managers, they're not asked to lay down their lives every day. We have all <clears throat> heard a calling and answered it 
we take an oath and we hold that oath sacred. We uphold the oath to a T. My fallen brothers and sisters have upheld the oath at the risk and sacrifice of their very lives. I want to scream all of your names so they don't forget. I want to make them listen. Our lives go on. You wanted it that way. We all want it that way. But we will come together, all of us, and we will light candles. We will read your names out loud. We will salute you and play taps. We will render a 21-gun salute. And we will answer the calls when they come. We pray no one ever again joins your ranks, but we know someone will. But we will go still without reservation because we are the peacemakers. We know that if our time comes, it won't be for nothing. We will never, ever forget. Beautiful. You got believe, through it. I can't believe I did that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have done it. Hmm. No, it's a great article, and I wanted the listener to hear that. I'll just grab one of these. Yeah, yeah grab a tissue there. <laughs> allergies. Your allergies picked yeah. up here yeah, all of a sudden. Pollen in this room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard ragweed. Yeah, it I didn't heard, help that Joe was. <laughs> Joe was running around the room flicking flowers the whole time. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. Ragweed blew in. I think. No, um, no, no, Mark. That was that was beautiful. I, I want I want everybody to hear that and powerful. The major rank is an appointed rank, right? It's not one yes. that you test for. It's not one that you, that you get promoted to because you outscored other people. But it's Correct. it's more of one. It's I, I guess it's a little more personal. I haven't done yeah. it myself yet, so I can't really speak too much on it. But what what did you think when you got the, the notification that you were selected to be a major on this department? Um, I literally started shaking. I did. I didn't think um, – I've been a lieutenant for six years. And in the past, the past couple of chiefs um, sent out, you know, email. If you want to be considered, send a resume. Right. Um Chief Garcia didn't do that. He, I think he put his trust – I'm not speaking for him at all, but I think he put his trust in his executive assistants um, to look at uh, lieutenants around the department, their body of work. What the, I'd been in legal for the last three years. Uh, Joe and I worked in legal together. You had, to, um, you had to supervise me. Yeah. So that right there was, you know, that was a feather in my hat. Right that was a critical there. incident in itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I need to talk to the doc about that. Um, but, it, yeah, I started – you know, at the time, I was getting pretty tenured as a, as a lieutenant, and I had never been in patrol. So um, my decision, I talked to Yvonne about it, and I, I said, you know, if I don't get promoted to major this year, I'm not going to get promoted. Um, I'm getting kind of long in the tooth, so they say. And – uh, and I was fine with it, but I was going to go to them, to the chiefs, and I was going to ask for a patrol watch. Uh, you know, done my time three years on deep nights at the jail, three years in legal, taking care of all that. That's a lot of moving parts. That unit is a stressful place. And uh, then I got the call from Chief Anderson, and I, I literally started shaking. I was trembling. My voice was trembling when I was talking because – it was exciting for me. I've always been, like I said, I skipped one promotion test 25 years ago, and I'll never do it again. 
and so I'm just driven that way. Um, now, uh, it's I, I thoroughly enjoy it. He called me and told me I was getting the gang unit and the fugitive unit and a new new division they called tactical investigations division um i loved it and spent 10 months there and then they they did a little shuffle now i'm uh i'm over the north central division patrol division finally back in patrol and that was kind of my goal when i was a deputy i wanted to be a patrol sergeant that's all that was that was my goal in life i was i was done well you and i went to the the cpi school uh, yes. Probably the longest six weeks of of my career. Yeah, yeah. Um, they weren't allowing us to wear guns out after a while because they were yeah. afraid. We were <laughs> yeah, there was there was a, a definite watch uh, put in place over that group. Um, but one of the things we discussed in that was the leadership philosophy, and I remember reading a book about it. And while I was in the class, I kind of thought, "Man, this is kind of a joke," you know. But I went back and actually read the book after the class again, and I developed my own leadership philosophy on that because I think you. If you don't, if you're not aware of how you're doing things, you're just going to kind of walk through it and not really have a purpose to it. What's your leadership philosophy? Yes, I I have to confess that I didn't read the book. I just kind of BS my way through the paper. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I've been around a lot of of good and really bad leaders, Um, so I just take a little something from from all those experiences. I had a sergeant in. San Antonio who couldn't write you up couldn't write you up because he couldn't write <laughs> um and I mean that's true I'm not gonna say his name but he's dead now rest in peace Sarge but um um my leadership philosophy is that I don't want to ever have to ask anybody to do anything or that I'm not willing to do myself or haven't already done um and but sometimes you have to be um you can't tell people that you can't it doesn't make you it doesn't help when you're telling somebody to do something that that's a, a shit job you can't say hey look i've done this three times you know they don't care they just but you have to just be firm with them and, and um the the worst thing i have to do now as a major is recommend discipline because i don't like to do that, I like to sit people down and go, "Hey, man, you know you you messed this up." So, first time is we're we're good, but don't let it happen again. You know that's the way I like to do things. Comes a point in time though when you have to, you know, you yeah. got to lay down the law, you got to lay down the hammer on people, and, and they need it. And some of them thank you for it later. Bill is what I think, and um. So that's 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 just I mean I don't really have a set thing that I say when somebody asks me that but um you know I treat people fairly I don't um I don't play favorites I try not to um it's hard not to when you have somebody that's doing a real good job for you you want to reward them um but you can't reward them outside the boundaries of right of what you're of what the the process is you know you have to you have to we can't give financial bonuses because you did a great job you yeah know, you're not gonna get a check from me at christmas time but uh, <laughs> the 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 praise from your commanders though often is more yeah. than the financial would be anyway yeah you know like i'll, I'll give you an example so when i 
when I went to North Central, um, it was in January, so you're kind of up against a small set of stats because it's January. <clears throat> but February, March come rolling around, and our violent crime was way up. And everybody says, people are going to be listening going, no, not at North Central. Um, but it's the percentage, it's a volume. You know, if you if you catch three extra murders, you're up. 300 percent you know you could be um so we started to do these we started to do this ops plan in addition to the to the violent crime reduction plan that we're doing now which is absolutely 100 percent working in my opinion um so i started we started to do some extra stuff and i started sharing those stats with the, with the division-wide email and thanking my officers for what they were doing and I've had I had one come up to me um, not too long after I sent one of those emails out, and he didn't say anything. This guy's got thirty five years on the department. He didn't say anything else except, except thank you. And I was just looked at him funny, and I was like, for that email. He said yes. You know, he said you don't understand how much that means to to these young kids that are running around out here thinking that nobody cares. You know, so that's that's just what I do. I send emails out and, and i'll share the percentages and hey when we took a we took a hit on this or we need to work just i'm in it you know they hear me on the radio not a lot but i get out and i try to get out and uh just we, go ahead joe now i'll say working working for you the uh the thing i took away most is how genuine you are and just likability but you you have to be a boss too and i always respect and i've i butt heads with, with with bosses over the years and but i always respect them and I, I will even after you're long gone from this job i will always probably still call you major or chief whatever you leave I'm just, yeah. that's just how i am <laughs> but you know your your lackability and and you being a genuine person i never looked at you as a person that made decisions because you wanted to get a leg up and we have a, we have plenty of that in uh in this profession with people they they command a certain way because they want more and i never yeah. i never got that from you i appreciate that because that's i consciously do that i mean i don't want anybody to think that i'm gonna you know throw you under the bus just to make my just to better myself i'm I'm just not wired that way. No, I think right. a lot of people put you down as a yes man for sure. I mean, you've always been a company guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never, never gone against the grain. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never worked for Mark, but I've obviously worked with him. And uh, one of the things I really appreciate about Mark is that, that Mark has never treated me any differently. As he went up in ranks, he's always been uh, probably one of the most respectful people I've ever met. You, you, you respect the people you work with and the people that work for you. And I, I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. That's that means a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've had to tell um, the uh, one of our coworkers in in legal that was having all the problems. They'll, they'll yeah. come to your head pretty. But I had to tell him he was in my office talking to me about something, and I had to, I was having to I was having to give him the news that he couldn't wear his uniform anymore because he was he was you know sick and. Uh, you know, I won't say his name, but this is Mark and yes, the, him talking, mm -hmm. not Lieutenant and Senior Corporal. Uh, right now, this that's 
first and foremost, known the guy ever since I was a rookie, rookie in quotes, yeah. <laughs> at Northeast. Um, but you know, I, that's that's where I am. I mean, I'm just you know, if I have to be a major, I'll be a major, and I hope people have enough respect for me to know that I don't. It's not personal when right. it has to, when that has to be done. It's not personal. It's business. You know. We talk on this podcast quite a bit about the incidents that are pretty major, you know, and, and you've had your fair share of, of major incidents, but it's not just the the cool stories and, and the, the bad situations that really define who you are as a person. But do you think that as a whole, all of those incidents help mold you as, as who you are now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had to, I had to deal – Big tough Marine deputy out in the middle of nowhere one night when I was down in uh, San Antonio, and uh, this helped. I sort of cut my teeth, if you will, down there when I got here. I already had ten years on department, so um, I had this guy pulled over for DWI in the middle of nowhere with his wife in the car, and. he, I got him out. He was very cooperative. Field sobriety test, everything. Yeah, he's going to blow probably a 12 uh, in my mind. And I said, well, I'm going to place you under arrest. And he said, no, I'm not going to jail. I mean, we're out there in the middle of nowhere. So we're starting to go back and forth. I'm starting to tell him, you know, uh, man, I said you're going to jail. You know, I'm deputy sheriff, you know. He said, sir, I'm not going back to jail. I'm not going to jail. You know, so I'm calling, call for backup, you know, in that cover. And uh, he's 20 minutes away, says it on the radio. And uh, so we're going back and forth, back and forth. And he's not going. I can tell. I mean, we call it, Rickerman called it Spidey Sense. Something's fixing to go down here. So... We're just kind of standing there staring at each other. And this guy just out of the blue just says, hey, uh, do you know Raul Fernandez? I said, Raul Fernandez? Yeah, I went to the academy with him. Well, that's my brother-in-law. So I was like, ding. <laughs> you know. I was, so I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, okay. Is your Has your wife been drinking? No. Go stand over there, you know. He did. He was complied with everything i said he just said he was not going to jail and i've never backed down from anything you know that i never told anybody about this by the way like very few people know this don't worry nobody listens yeah (laughs) um and i gave him his wife quick little hgn she wasn't hadn't been drinking at all and just the fact that i made him ride home with his wife because he's big macho he was a macho dude pretty stout was probably punishment enough for him because that's why he was driving in the first place. And uh, that taught me a lot later on here in my career that it's not always worth it. You know, don't – I'm going home one way or the other. So, I don't know. Everybody's out there punching the steering wheel right now going, you biggest (laughs) wimp in the world. No, I think it demonstrates fairness. Mark, yeah. I mean, and and you and you've been you've you policed in fairness, and you've commanded in fairness, and 
that's who you are. And I, I appreciate you. I, I appreciate being, you know, you doing this, coming on here and uh, telling your story. And I want to ask one final question. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Are you looking nervous? Yeah. <laughs> what would you tell a young rookie that this is the best way to – what can they do to get through this, survive 30-plus years in this profession? Man. Um, in, in today's climate, Mark. It would yeah, like it when you start in Bear County. Uh, don't just don't give up. I mean, there's gonna be uh, there's gonna be times when you're you. I mean, you're not ever gonna go through a thirty plus year career without getting your ass whooped, and both physically and you know career wise. I mean, you're gonna have ups and downs. Um, you're gonna fail tests. You're gonna fail PT tests. I know, Lord knows, I've failed enough of them, and you, you just have to keep going. I mean. The, what I was going to say before when we started was if I would have stayed in college, none of this stuff would have ever happened to me. I'm thankful. Thank God for the quote-unquote poor decisions I made when I was 19 because none of this would be happening right now. You know, I wouldn't have my life any other way. I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. I think that you finally, I mean, you, you may not believe it, but I think that you did kick the football and Lucy did not yank it away in your life and your career. I realize that. I realize that now. Thanks for coming on, man. I uh, appreciate your friendship. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored to say that, uh, you know, that you're my friend. Thank you. Thank all of you. It's, it's an honor.